0: Well, again, good morning, Uh, welcome to all of you, and uh, thanks for being here. Uh, We're going to look at a passage this morning that is, uh, according to most scholars, uh, and myself included, although I'm not necessarily a scholar, one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament, and perhaps in the whole Bible. Very difficult passage, and I'm going to try to walk us through it and and help uh, make some sense of it for you, and uh, answer perhaps some questions that you may have. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 3. We'll continue our reading there. And uh, we're going to look at these verses starting in verse 18, and running through the uh, end of the chapter, verse 22. And so now hear uh, God's word. This is the word of the Lord. In a letter uh, written by Julius Caesar in the year 47 B.C., uh, many of you probably have remembered this from your world history, ancient history. In the year 47 B.C., the Battle of Zella, uh, Caesar wrote a letter to one of his friends, and in the letter, this very famous phrase that I know everyone has heard at some point or another, I came, I saw, I conquered. Veni, vidi, vici in Latin. Veni, vidi, vici. That's uh, very famous. I came, I saw, I conquered. Very quick victory. He, he went through the enemy like lightning and it was over. And it has become sort of a proverbial saying, if you will. I came, I saw, I conquered. People use it in normal speech. The king of Poland uh, king Jan the third in uh, the 17th century the very famous battle of Vienna when the Ottoman uh, Turks and uh, Muslims were trying to conquer Vienna uh, and uh, the the king was the last actually the last uh, uh, bastion before they swept over uh, the rest of Europe uh, they defeated the uh, the Ottoman Empire there and King Jan re-worded re, uh, it and he said this venimus vedimus uh, deus vic- vicit deus vicit we came we saw God conquered and then of course some of you remember Hillary Clinton uh, no booze, please just Hillary Clinton 2011 a Muammar Gaddafi was killed in Libya And uh, Hillary very famously said, we came, we saw, he died. And so that is uh, how this passage uh, from Julius Caesar's letter has been used. A a phrase that means to conquer and to conquer quickly and with absolute and complete destruction. 1 Peter, this passage we just read, is perhaps one of the clearest expressions of that phrase. I came, I saw, I conquered. He came, He saw, He conquered. The problem is that we get caught up in those verses 19-21 through 21, that talks about Noah and going and descending into the prison and all of this. And it just, it just automatically, all of our thinking zeroes in on that. And we think, oh my gosh, what is going on here? And we can lose sight of what Peter is really communicating. And that's what I'm hoping very much that I can do today. That this passage is absolutely essential to understanding Christ's victory. Christus Victor. That was a slogan of of the ancient church. Christus Victor. Christ the victorious one. But the passage is very difficult to understand. Martin Luther said this, this is a strange text, and certainly a more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the Apostle meant. And let me tell you, Luther's not alone. I have spent hours, and actually several weeks, not just this past week, but I started studying this months ago. And I have read everything from the ancient church fathers up until today, the modern Uh, commentators, and nobody really has a a clear picture of what's going on, except for me. And so I'm going to clear it all up this morning. You're going to leave here saying, our pastor is a genius. And the only one that knows the real meaning. Well, you know I'm kidding, tongue in cheek. Uh, But let me give you a little bit of background. And what I'm hoping that you'll do, if you take your bulletin, the passage is printed in your bulletin. And you look what I've done here in mine, you may or may not be able to see that. If you just bracket verses 19 through 20, just draw a box around that and pull that out for a minute and see that that is a parenthetical, what we call a parenthetical statement. Peter just drops that in there for a very, very good reason and I'm going to explain why. But without getting all caught up in what does it mean he went to prison? What does it mean he preached to the spirits in the prison? What does all that mean in the days of Noah? What's going on with all that? Just pull that out for a second. It's part of the text. He put it there for a very, very good reason. And and let me see if I can explain it. Over time, over history, up until today, scholars have basically broken this down into four views. Uh, actually three, I'm going to add a fourth one that's, that I think needs some consideration, but four views, and let me explain them very quickly, and, and many of you have probably heard this, and if you have questions after church, I'll be happy uh, to answer them for you. The first one, and the one that's probably, probably most confusing and maybe the most well-known, is what we call the dissensus ad inferos. Descensus ad inferos, or the descent into hell. And those of you that grew up reciting the Apostles' Creed, and we recite that creed here in church, you know that it says, He descended into hell. And so we we have been confessing this forevermore in the church. The Apostles' Creed goes back to very early in the church, first two, three centuries uh, of the church, and it has this phrase, descended into hell. Now it's interesting that the apostles' creed, listen carefully, was never adopted by any ecumenical council, although it is world you know, used worldwide. Whereas the Nicene Creed was adopted by the Council of Nicaea uh, and the rest of the church universally, and it doesn't have this phrase. But immediately, what happened, because the phrase was in the Apostles' Creed, and because of this passage here in 1 Peter, theologians of that day, the ancient fathers, and later on uh, at the time of Augustine, tried to figure out what is meant by he descended into hell. And so in the, in the, in the Westminster Larger Catechism, I think it's important that you all understand this, that by the time of the Reformation, Scholars and theologians were already trying to figure out what do we do with this passage? What does this mean? Because the ancient fathers and the medieval Catholic church and and even parts of Eastern Orthodoxy came up with an idea that there was a purgatory, a place between heaven and hell where people were stored or kept until the final judgment. And those of you, my wife was raised Catholic, I was raised Eastern Orthodox, many of you have come up in those traditions or a tradition like that where purgatory is very well known. We all know what purgatory is. In fact, even religions outside of Christianity have ideas of purgatory. A storage place, and so we think of the the chapter in Luke uh, where he talks about abraham 's bosom, where uh, Lazarus and the rich man Lazarus was in abraham 's bosom, and the rich man was in hell, and there was a gulf between them. well, this idea that Jesus descended into hell between his cross and resurrection is even in many study Bibles today, not Reformation study Bible of any kind or any good study Bible, but in some of the uh, more obscure ones, that Jesus went into hell... For three days, and there he either suffered, or he preached to the people and spirits that were in hell, or he preached to, and again there's variations, one scholar said there's possibly, because of the difficulty of the Greek syntax, and believe me, I have gone over it and over it, it is very difficult. The, the difficulty that there may be possibly, listen to this, 180 possible combinations of how this particular set of verses could be interpreted. Do you realize how difficult that is? Now, whatever Peter meant, Peter understood it, yes? And Peter's original audience understood it. But something is lost in our day. In other words, through history, we have have come to uh, uh, find it very difficult. So let me get back to what I was saying. He either went into hell and preached to these spirits or as the Westminster larger catechism, our catechism says, he descended into the grave. Hell, Sheol being same as grave, which is in fact the case. One thing you need to know, whatever position you want to take with respect to Jesus descending into hell, this is not in no way a scripture that supports post-mortem salvation that people somehow are going to get some second chance. You can't create a doctrine on anything like one scripture, especially when it's as confusing as it is. So there's one of the theories. Second one is what's called a post-resurrection claim. The other one is pre-resurrection. This is a post-resurrection claim that Jesus sometime between His death and His ascension into heaven proclaimed to the spirits uh, all the spirits, all the authorities, and all the powers that be that he had won a victory. This one was popular for a while and then it, it lost uh, its popularity. The third one I'm going to suggest or bring before you and uh, uh, is, is well-liked by many, many scholars today and uh, probably is more reasonable than the other two. And this is that somehow, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the pre-incarnate Christ preached through Noah okay, to that generation, the Noahic generation, who were very wicked. And they rejected Noah's message because Noah, according to Second Peter, was a preacher of righteousness. And that this parallel is what Peter's trying to get across the parallel between Christ preaching through Noah and Christ now preaching through the apostolic church, that that those two things are parallel and similar enough that he wanted to bring that story in and explain it uh, that just like Noah was vindicated and his family rescued through the flood, you Christians in, in Peter's day and in our day, by extension in our day, we also will be preserved and protected. People will, in fact, reject our message just like they did in Noah's day. And uh, and we will be preserved and saved in the ark, which is baptism. Okay? Third view. Then there's a fourth one that is more recent, and this was lost because the texts were lost and were rediscovered in uh, about the 19th century. These are the... the uh, A tradition that's around the book of Enoch, an apocryphal book. Uh, And did any of you see the movie Noah with uh, Russell Crowe? Anybody see that movie? Well, that movie was based on the book of, of Enoch, not on the Bible. And so the watchers and all that were all from that book. The interesting thing is that this tradition of Enoch and Noah and the watchers, the spirits, the evil spirits... Uh, that you read about in Genesis 6, that tradition, even though it was lost documentarily, in other words, they didn't have the documents until they were rediscovered back in the 19th century, the tradition was very, very strong in Asia, in Turkey. In fact, everybody knew it. All the Gentiles knew it, the Jews, everybody understood it. It was just a well-known... It's kind of like the legend of Paul Bunyan. You know, one of those types of things where... Maybe it's true, maybe it's not true, but of course there's not a blue giant ox, right? But, well, it's a nice story. And so, this Noah, Enoch story, and the flood, and the, and the uh, watchers, was also very deeply embedded in that tradition. And a lot of scholars that have read the book of Enoch now, and have studied it, say Peter may have been drawing on that well-known tradition, for the same reason as the third version. So, all right. Have I confused you well enough up to now? Yes? Okay, thanks. I'm glad you're totally confused because so am I. Look. We may never know, and you're just going to have to accept this, there's parts of Scripture that you may never understand. And when you die, you may never understand them either. When you get to heaven and you say to Jesus, you know, I really want to know what uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, 19-20 uh, meant. And you know, Jesus is probably going to just pat us on the head and say, you know, isn't that nice? Now go play in the River Jordan and leave me alone. You know, we, we seem to think that, that somehow magically we're going to get to heaven and understand everything. And that just isn't the case. We're still creatures, and He's still the Creator. He's sovereign, we're not. He knows stuff we don't. He knows everything comprehensively. We know everything only uh, by by analogies. And so, we come at things, and, and we will always have to understand things by some tangential means where he knows everything comprehensively and so we often in our theology class we tell our students uh, you can know God you can apprehend God but you cannot comprehend God only he comprehends himself only he knows everything about himself so we may never know exactly what Peter meant or exactly what the original audience understood but we do know some very key things and this is what I want to point out with you today and we'll do this quickly and I think you'll see where Peter was going and why getting down too much into the weeds of whether or not there's post-mortem salvation did Jesus actually go into hell itself uh, what was going on there instead of being overly literal let's see what he was trying to communicate that is crystal clear and why I preface the rather long introduction because we can get so caught up in those couple verses, 19 and 20, that we lose the big picture. And the big picture is what I told you earlier. He came, He saw, and He conquered. So let's look first at He came. Verse 18, look at what it says. It's talking about His humanity and His mission of atonement. Now, if, there were two th- if, you were, if you were asked to boil down two things that are absolutely essential to understand about Jesus Christ, those of you that know the cone of certainty, if you had to say, what do I have to know about Jesus really to really get what He's all about? You would have to understand His humanity and you would have to understand His mission of atonement. That He came as a human being. And the reason that He came was not to show us the way. Not to set before us a whole pattern of uh, behavioral uh, uh, rules and say, follow these. This is the way that you get to God. Follow these rules and you'll get to God. That isn't what He came to do. He came to be a human being and then to make atonement, to satisfy the requirements that God had laid upon every human being at the very beginning of creation and in which every one of us, to some degree or another, have failed Him. Christ suffered once for sins, the passage says, past present and future. Christ came to suffer for sins. In other words, He came to step into our place. Look at the, the second little phrase. The righteous for the unrighteous. This me, this is what is called penal substitutionary atonement. That's a, the, the a theological term. But it doesn't hurt for you to learn that. Penal substitution. It means this. That the criminal is found guilty, and the criminal has to pay uh, a, a price for that crime. And the just thing to do is to make them pay, because they did commit the crime. So if the judge went, "Ollie, ollie, oxen free, you know what, I'm a nice guy, I'm a nice judge, I love, therefore I'm just going to let you go. Well that sounds nice, but what about the people that he murdered? What about their families? What about the property he stole? What about the the, the goods that were taken away from those people? What about the injustice? The family, the people that were hurt, all of this other stuff over here would have been uh, treated unjustly. So a just judge has got to levy punishment for it to be just. But the story of the Bible is, I don't know if you all, you know, I like movies, and I'm not ashamed to tell you I watch movies. Um, One of the best movies that I've ever seen, Uh, and and it's not for children. You you know, parents, please be careful, age appropriate. But it's the movie To End All Wars. Have any of you seen that movie, To End All Wars, with Kiefer, Kiefer Sutherland? It's a true true story of uh, the building of the Thailand Burma Railway by the prisoners that the Japanese Army uh, caught. Uh, you know how many of you seen the Bridge over the River Kwai? That's the story. Okay, only this story is more true than the Bridge over the River Kwai. To End All Wars, a magnificent movie, very brutal. Uh, there's a little bit of language, but the, cl- the clearest, that you will find very few movies made in Hollywood, the clearest expression of the gospel you'll ever see in your life. And they don't even hide it. It's just overt. It's out there for everybody to see. It's really amazing. Beautiful piece of film. In that movie, there are two uh, times when in the prison camp, one prisoner steps in and takes the punishment for another prisoner for another situation. The first one uh, is that the, the work crew is working, and a shovel goes missing. And at the end of the day, the uh, Japanese army, uh, the prison keepers, the guards, are counting the shovels and the picks and the axes and all the other things because they, they don't want the prisoners to have any of those things uh, at their own leisure. They have to use them for work only. And one of the shovels goes missing. And the, the commandant is very brutal in this movie. And he was, in fact, a real person. And he was very brutal. He is going to punish the whole group. For the loss of this shovel, unless you step forward, unless you tell me the truth right now, everybody is going to suffer. Everyone. And so the character in the movie uh, Yankers—he's one of the uh, uh, one of the American prisoners. They called him Yankers, Kiefer Sutherland. He steps forward and he takes the punishment for the group. Later on in the movie, it even gets. It even, they step it up a notch and this actually happened. Another prisoner created an infraction and to, le- to, to punish this prisoner they sentenced him to death by crucifixion because he was a Christian. And in the movie you'll see this. Amazing. We're going to crucify you. And the chaplain, who was not even a chaplain, he was just a self-appointed guy played by this, this uh, actor Mark Strong. Some of you may know who he is. He steps up and he says, please, I will take his place. And the commandant said, Fine. He's as good at you're in fact you're better because you're the one that's been leading all these people to Jesus. We're going to crucify you even better. And they do. It's very brutal. This is what substitutionary atonement is all about. It's someone else stepping in the path of the train, pushing the other person out of the way. It's somebody else getting in front and taking the bullet. It's someone else throwing themselves on the hand grenade. And every one of you that are parents knows what that is, because many times parents do that for their children. We take the blow. We take the hit. And if you were a child, and all of you at some point were a child, and it's hard to believe, but at some point we were all children, we know there are people, our parents and others, who took it for us and suffered in our place for us. Kathy Keller says that the level of happiness for a parent can only rise to the level of their most unhappy child. And I think that's true because we know what it is to feel deeply and to want to protect and guard from harm. And Jesus said, No greater love has this than someone lay down his life for his friends. And so atonement is well known, folks. It's well understood. We know what it means to suffer in someone's stead. The only difference between Kiefer Sutherland and Mark Strong and all these stories and all the parents and all the children and all the glorious stories of substitution, the only difference, listen carefully, this is the heart of the Gospel. This is the heart of Christianity. The very dead center. The only difference is who suffered. The only difference is the One who took it. Christ suffered once for sin. Christ was the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ is the one, look at the end of the verse, who brought us to God. It was Him. Him and nobody else. Him and nothing else. He took the bullet. He stood in front of the train. He, cu- he drank the cup of God's wrath completely to the bottom. And what Peter is saying to this group of people is, look, this has got to be the ground on which you build your life. Not your denomination. Not your doctrinal particularities. But who Jesus is and what He has done for you. And that, and my, my dear friends, my congregation, the people that I'm giving my life for, and you are giving your life to this church, that has got to be the foundation, the bedrock upon which you plant your life. Otherwise, your Christianity is just going to be a bunch of malarkey. It is not going to ever stand up against the least little bit of Persecution. The least little bit. In fact, you see it today with the deterioration of the church, of our modern church, is just collapsing on itself. Everybody I know, including some of the greatest theologians and scholars, that, that if I mention them, you would know, they are shocked at what is happening. Because Christianity in America is collapsing on itself. Because of bad doctrine, un- misunderstanding scriptures, Lack of commitment. Biblical inerrancy. We went through these for weeks, folks, talking about it. And this is a call to us from this one little passage. Peter is saying, look, you have got to set your life on this bedrock. Otherwise, it's not going to hold up. It's not going to hold up. The least little wind's going to poof like that and it's gone. And it will be gone. The tiniest little slight and people get offended. You know, I've been saying it week after week, the tiniest little thing, or the tiniest little news blurb, you know, about some little, oh, we, we're uh, Christians in America, we're all being persecuted. No, we're not. There's no such thing as persecution in America. It may come, but probably not in your lifetime. But we act as if we're just, we're just being assaulted with, with no end in sight. And all the time there are people that are really living this, that need their lives, folks, listen, planted on that bedrock. And so this doctrine of substitutionary atonement, this idea that Jesus for me, Him for me, you cannot just take it lightly. You can't just go over it. And that's why, by the way, Peter put it right in the center and why he surrounded this with with some pretty amazing stuff, including this difficult passage Uh, 19 through 20 he came he saw let me do this quickly we may have to come back to it next week he saw this is his assault this is 19 through 20 whatever else the verses mean what it does mean is that when Jesus came when he suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous when he did that that he was making an assault with all of his power all the power of God in his creation All the power of the resurrection, all the power of that atonement, every single powerful molecule of power that was in the blood of Christ was directly assaulting the powers of heaven and hell and everything in between. Angels, demons, walker uh, uh the 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 watchers of noah's uh, legend and enoch's legend whoever these powers are that the ancient world believed in and knew were there that we modern people tend to forget jesus went and proclaimed victory somehow he proclaimed that victory i think he, he knows we know how and he uses this analogy with noah noah is the narra is, is the, 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 way he, the way he analogizes it. He said, "Like Noah, sin listen folks, sin is a prison. Any of you that have been addicted, I know what it is to have uh, an, an addiction. I think some of you know what it is to have an addiction. Uh, I, I, I know what it is to, to be captive, to have my life captivated by something to where I can't let go. And if you want me to tell you what they are, I will, because they're not what you're thinking. They're not the notorious thing. We think, well, it's got to be a drug, it's got to be alcohol, could be. But not that. Do you know what I'm addicted to? Starts with an "S and ends with an L, F, and there's an E" and an L" between. Self, just like you, Hey. So what we should do every Sunday on church is, hi, I'm Chuck. I'm a selfie. And then what's the response, Jeff? What what do they do at AA? Hi, Chuck. Yeah, that's what we should do every Sunday. In fact, I'm actually going to put it in the liturgy next week. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, right? I mean, think about it. That's what we're addicted to. We're addicted to pleasing ourselves, and drugs can be some, sex can be something, alcohol It could be any number of things. Could be church, could be pride, could be self-righteousness. You know, look at me! Look how good I do! I'm I'm really behaving well. I'm the best behaved of everybody. But look at my family. You know, we take our children and make them out. You know, make them our our god and our idols. I've done that myself as well. Oh, look at how great my kids are. Aren't you impressed? We roll this stuff out. All of us do that. We are self-addicted. Sin is a prison. Secondly, God is patient. God is patient. That's what Peter's saying. God is patient. He was patient in the days of Noah, and He's patient today. You know, we want things to happen. We want God to bring judgment. Well, what happens if He does? Who will get caught up in that judgment? Maybe someone you love. Maybe someone you're praying for. Maybe someone you're hoping for. Maybe someone who's strayed away. Do you really want God's judgment right now? Maybe it'll drop on you. You have all your ducks in a row. Are you all squared away? Really? How arrogant. God is patient. We're not. God is patient. God is a just judge. He will punish them. He cast us out of Eden. Because we deserved it. He sent the flood because humanity deserved it. He put us in Egypt because we deserved to be in Egypt for 400 years. He brought us out and left us in the wilderness because we belonged in the wilderness for 40 years. He is a just judge. But He's also, listen, a loving Father. A merciful, gracious, loving Father. Because just like in Noah's day, He clothed Adam and Eve with skins. He built Noah an ark, or helped him build an ark. He provided Abraham a ram in the bush. He provided manna in the wilderness. He split the Red Sea and brought His people out by a strong arm. And He gave them a Passover lamb. Just like Noah's day is our day. Only it's no skin, no ark, no manna from heaven, no ram caught in a bush. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And all of those things, the skins that Adam and Eve were clothed with, the ark that Noah built, the exodus from Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, the manna, the, the, the blood of the Lamb, all of them pointing, pointing, pointing to the one Christ suffered, the righteous for the unrighteous. That is the Gospel. And that is why Peter put this part into the Scriptures. I'm going to have to stop and we'll pick it up next week. But he's making a very strong point that those of us that are in a world like Noah's world, that is not readily accepting the preaching of righteousness, that we are going to have to bear down on the one thing that will float your life. The one thing that will buoy you up when the floods come. And that is Jesus Christ plus nothing. Amen? Plus nothing. Him and Him alone. All the rest is sinking stand. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness and Your mercy that endures forever. I do pray, Father, that You would help us to build our rock, our lives upon that rock of our Lord Jesus. To find our refuge in the ark of Christ, who protects us from the flood. Please, Father, help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.